We're here with the Gene Odom podcast, speaking to the great Gene Odom. My name is Patty Ann Hughes, and today we're discussing the Leonard Skinner plane crash of October 20th, 1977. And of course, Gene Odom was there, was in the crash, and can give us firsthand knowledge, uh, the latest release of the movie on Amazon. I'll never forget you, The Last 72 Hours of Leonard Skinner, recently premiered on Amazon. Would you like to expand on that, Gene? Um, um, factual the events of that day, yeah, a sad day. Oh yeah, a, a extremely sad day. You know, October twentieth, seventy-seven. Uh, um, a day that you can't forget. I won't ever forget. Um, it, let me see how we started out. Well, oh I my gosh! Before you go, Gene, I just wanted to you know highlight the fact that there's so much controversy around this band around Leonard Skinner. I mean, to this day, here we are 42 years later after the crash, and people are still coming up with conspiracy theories on what took place on that day and the days leading up to the crash. So my question for you today is, if you could please expand for the listeners on what really took place, the actual facts of what happened, and you know what led up to that, that tragic event, essentially, that free of all the controversy, if there's any, we just want the facts, basically. Um, well, there's people that know the facts and there's a, 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 a person or people that um, don't display the facts. They will they're, they're try to display their own facts, their own fantasy facts. Um, if I could go back to when we left, uh, when we were going on the t on tour, how this is how this started uh, in October of 77. 17th, maybe 1860, the day we're leaving. Let me, unbeknowing to anybody in the band and me, there was a police investigation going on. At the time, everybody on the plane, uh, excuse me, everybody from Jacksonville that was associated with the band or employed by the band were under surveillance. The band members were under surveillance. Yeah unbeknowing to any of us. And so uh, they were after a big uh, a cocaine dealer in Jacksonville, which I, I knew, and I know he's, he served his time, so um, I'm not gonna put his name out there. He can remain nameless. Yeah, and so they were after him. And um, how I found this out was 20 years after the crash, I was dating a girl, lady, at the time, and her boss lady was dating an ex-vice squad detective. We were sitting around having dinner and I was working on my second book, uh, Remembering the, uh, the Freebirds of Southern Rock. And we were talking about it. And we were talking and he said, well, that's not right. And I went, yeah. He says, let me tell you what went down. And so what happened was them having everybody under surveillance or whatever, there was a couple of guys that lived out of state that wasn't under surveillance because the Jacksonville Police Department didn't have anything to do with them, but the ones that was local. They thought, the vice squad in the Jacksonville Police Department thought that the Leonard Skinner band was selling drugs and they were going to get the drug dealer that was supplying them. And so, um, um, when we were leaving, to go on tour, the fall tour, 77, summer 77, 
fall of 77, excuse me, the summer tour is over. Um, everything been under surveillance. We didn't know that the airplane came into Jacksonville the day before we left to go to Statesboro, Georgia for the warm-up show. Nobody knew that. We didn't know that. Nobody but management and the pilots. And the crew that they dropped off. To verify this detective story, I contacted one of the crew members that was on the plane that was dropped off the day before. And he wasn't aware that the plane left because that was the deal. He didn't know nothing. And Gene, if I just, just to let the audience know, if you're not familiar with who Gene Odom is and his relationship with Leonard Skinner, you were really the, really the head of security. I was security, yeah. Okay, thank you. And so um, um, the plane flew from Texas to Jacksonville the day before we left. We didn't know this, of course, and dropped off a couple of crew members, and they went to their hotel, and the plane departed and went to New Orleans to do a little party. And, and so when the plane came back the next day, we boarded the plane and flew to Statesburg, Georgia, for the warm-up show. And so um, when we were having dinner, this is the, the retired detective was telling me all this. I went, you know, I had no, no idea. And so um, the plan was they already put this package together to advertise as a, not advertise, but um, a publicity stunt for Jacksonville Police Department. The Leonard Skinner band busted for selling cocaine, coke dealing, um, in the process of getting a big coke dealer. And so that was the Jacksonville Police Department's plan. And so um, the, the plane went to New Orleans, and it's not so bad that management took the plane to New Orleans to pick up a little drugs and to party a little bit, but the hour, two and a half hours flight there, two and a half hour flight, five hour, approximately five hour flight time, that five hour flight time comes in to be, I don't know the right word to use, um, Important, let's just say they're important. Uh, and so we go to Statesboro, Georgia, and do the warm-up show. This, they did that at the college there because they had put new amplifiers in the, in, in the speakers and stuff into the, P, into the PA, uh, to the amplifiers. They wanted to see what the sound of the music was going to be at a smaller venue before they went to big time, all the big stage. And everything was perfect, so... Um, we went to Miami, uh, Jackson, uh, Miami, uh, Tampa, Lakeland, and then from Lakeland we were going to Greenville, South Carolina. And so we did Tampa and Lakeland, but none of us, nobody alive, knows how many hours the plane was flown in what's called auto-rich position on the right engine. I'll get to that. So we do the we do those shows, and then at Lakeland, when we leave Lakeland to go to Greenville, South Carolina, um, the plane is taking off, and just as we lift off the runway, uh, just a, a short distance, not far. Fire comes out the back of the engine, a big old long blue flame, boom, boom, you know, just a. 
a nightmare of, of a thing. And I happened to be sitting at the poker table back there, right behind the 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 wing where the engine was at, fall of fire. And so the pilot is the pilot's getting the plane up, and uh, it's at a, a angle so you couldn't run down the the walkway. I had to pull myself toward the cock toward the cockpit. I pulled myself up there, and they're fighting the plane, both the pilot and the co-pilot. I said, turn the damn plane around, the engine just blowed up. And they're like, sit down, go back, sit down, man, everything's, you know, I said, turn the damn plane around, the engine blowed up, something happened to the engine. And they're, look at the gauges, there's nothing wrong with the engine, man, go sit down. Go, go strap yourself in, you know, everything's fine. So I come back to my seat, you know, and the, we get up uh, uh, um, at altitude or whatever you call it, and we're flying, and, um, the engine would run in, the engine would, uh, uh, So when that happened, Gene, okay, so the, when, when you heard that noise, obviously there was a, I'm sure there was a, everybody was terrified. Oh, certainly, plane. certainly. Now, were people saying that these pilots, there was some kind of a conspiracy theory behind them, you know, maybe perhaps they'd been drinking or they, they were not, you know, as uh, responsible as they should have been? The, well, not at that time. Okay. And so. But where did all these conspiracy theories ha come about? So. When we got up and the planes were flying, and they they say everything's fine, don't worry about nothing, everything's good, whatever, you know. And we land in Greenville, South Carolina. In Greenville, South Carolina, according to uh, their estimates, they were the pilots, they knew what they were doing and everything. And in the, in the pilot's mind, by estimating his weight and takeoff and landings and everything, should have had approximately 170 gallons of fuel on the plane when we landed in Greenville. Right. And in Greenville, they added 400 gallons of fuel in Greenville. So in the back of his mind, he thinks he's got 570 gallons. 400 gallons should have flowed the plane from Greenville to Baton Rouge. Should have. Mm -hmm. So um, in the... Uh, uh, we're flying from Greenville to Baton Rouge. That engine's still making that noise. We don't know that they're flying with that engine in auto-rich position, what is known as auto-rich, which gives them more more fuel and it mixes the mix mixes the richer mixes the fuel richer f f at that period of time. Mm -hmm. So that one engine would burn 89 gallons per hour normal flight. And having that engine in auto-rich position, or either engine in auto-rich position, that engine would burn an extra 29 gallons per hour in auto-rich position. So when we the, the plane started running out of fuel, the pilots switched, trying to switch, figure out why they're out of fuel, they're doing all this. Billy Powell sees them doing that, and so as we crack, Billy Powell says they dumped the fuel. Of course, there was no fuel on the plane to dump. But they, they were doing all of this stuff trying to figure out why they were running out of fuel. And so when the engines completely ran out of fuel, then it was just a quiet with the engines, the propeller spinning, an eerie sound were coming down. And so the conspiracy thing starts out about why they ran out of fuel. And so the pilot thinking that he had 170 gallons when he added the 400 gallons. He didn't have the 170 gallons. When we landed in Greenville, South Carolina, 
They didn't know it, but that plane, when we taxied where we were going, that plane was out of gas. So the 400 gallons that they added should have flew the plane. But for all of my investigation and checking with mechanics and schools and everything, the auto-rich positioning, whatever mechanism that is, so instead of that plane burning 29 gallons per hour, that engine, it could have been burning 30 to 35 gallons an hour. And you multiply the extra fuel, uh, six or eight gallons per hour, that that engine burned extra, that the pilots didn't have no idea knowing that that extra fuel was being burnt. Multiply that eight gallons an hour times all the hours the flame flew with that engine in auto-rich position, which nobody knows. You multiply all that together, and that's approximately the 170 gallons that the pilots think they had on the plane when they added the 400 gallons. They didn't have that 170 gallons. That auto-rich mechanism was burning extra fuel that they didn't know was uh, being burnt, i.e., we find out the right fuel tank, the fuel gauge don't work. Okay. So they had no indication that the fuel was lower than 170 gallons. Uh, they checked it and they estimated what pilots would do, estimated how many fuel gallons that the thing was burning, how many gallons they burn on takeoff, how many gallons, knowing by a pilot, knowing how many gallons he's actually burning, not knowing that that engine uh, auto-rich mechanism is burning extra fuel because it couldn't show up because the fuel gauge didn't work. And so what it all boils down to is nobody knows how many hours they flew the plane in auto-rich position. And that auto-rich just burnt the extra fuel and they didn't know that they were had less fuel on the plane than they thought they had until so, it was too late. So there's other theories too that I have I personally read about there, there, was, there was one theory where they said that the plane had been idling for so long, waiting for certain band members to come out, that that, that contributed to the lack of gas, and that caused the plane crash. It's somewhat. Um, when we've, we're going to leave Greenville, South Carolina, a couple of band members were extraterrestrial superstars. They would lollygag around. So Artemis lived in, in Greenville somewhere. And so we was at on the tarmac waiting for him to show up. He was the last person, and he had a big entourage come with him, like a like a parade, a clown, a clown parade. And um, it, when he got there, they had to turn the engines back off. And uh, if 45 minutes to an hour that he was late, the little John engine running in the back, would that 45 minutes of little John engine running in the back helped us a little bit? If the if they hadn't have flew the plane in the in running in the auto rich position, the sensor system, that would have helped tremendously. They didn't know how much extra fuel they were burning because the gauge didn't work, and their anticipation of what they were burning, they had no idea that this system. It's like I drink a this coffee a little bit here. I take a swallow of that coffee. But if I turn this cup upside down and just pour that coffee all over my face, thinking I'm going to take a little swallow and spit it all over me, it was an accident. I didn't know I was going to do that. They didn't know how much fuel was being burnt through the um, auto-rich positioning sensors system. They had no idea. They anticipated everything by knowing, and they knew exactly what they were doing. 
They knew how much normally they would burn. They just didn't know that it was burning extra fuel through the um, auto-rich system, whatever it was, however it worked. So, Gene, do you believe that the reason there were so many of these conspiracy theories after the crash was that, well, A, it was so, it was just, it was such a tragic event, and it really, they were really on the precipice of such great fame. They already were so famous, but, I mean, it was going to be another level now at this point, and just, it was, it was just unthinkable, truly. So do you think that these conspiracy theories were just sort of defense mechanisms or just ideas people came up with to just try to make sense of this it completely, uh, what would say, what seemingly random and just terribly tragic event? Do you think that people were just trying to come up with ideas of why this happened? Well, it, it all goes back to the fact that uh, there's going to be conspiracy theories because Billy started it when he said that they dumped the fuel. Other people heard that and it goes, to the, well, Billy Powell said they dumped the fuel, you know, and there's all these other theories, but there's, there's, there's fact and there's theory. The fact is they didn't know how much fuel that engine was burning, extra fuel, because the gauge didn't work. Yeah. And they anticipated that it was burning 89 gallons an hour plus 29 gallons an hour. It was burning to 89 gallons an hour, possibly 30, 35 gallons an hour, extra fuel. And they had no idea knowing that. And according to what I've read in your book, uh, you, you actually really were very opposed to that plane taking off in the first place, obviously. And so it must have been just a shock to you when you saw the look on these, oh on these pilots' face. When, when I first pulled myself up there and told them to turn the plane around, um, they, they, you know, they're, they're the pilots, the pilot and the co-pilot, of course. And you know, in their mind, nothing's wrong. See, they, at that point in time, they still, oh, but when we, when we left Lakeland, and it, I find out that they, when, when it blowed that big uh, torching, it's called, out, they had the fuel mixture, mixture was too rich. That's why it torched and blowed that big fire out the engine. Mm -hmm. Okay, was that an indication that they were burning too much fuel because they had the mixture too rich? Is that natural? Is that normal? No, that's not normal. But you can make the mixture too rich and, and, and cause that engine to torch. Was, was the auto-rich mechanism burning so much fuel as they run in and making the engine whine? They thought it was a magneto. And so in Greenville, when we get up, we go out there and I go out to the airport and uh, I check with this hotel first and tell you where the pilot sat when he went to the airport. So I'll go out to the airport and they're working on the, they're working on the back of the engine. And I, I walk up and he gets down for the ladder. What's going on? Well, you know, we've we got a magneto problem here. We, you know, we, uh, we're messing with it. We're going to have a mechanic fix it in Baton Rouge. I said, have the mechanic fly here. We have a day off. Right. No, no, we, we fly into Baton Rouge. And in your book, you say that was, you contributed that to sort of an arrogance that would, that a doctor might have if they, if they uh, you know, are not showing bedside manner, or they're being, having the God syndrome. These pilots kind of ignored you when oh. you were fighting them. And I also have another question uh, that was actually brought to my attention about uh, the, you know, the famous story that, you know, Ron, well, Ronnie Van Zandt actually, he, he was fearful of flying in the first place. And, and um, I'm sure there was, there, there was pressure on him from the record company, from that they, you know, they were a touring machine really. So the, fa the fact that that plane was there, from what I've read, he said, you know, listen, you, you, when you're gonna go, you're gonna go. 
So it, is that a true statement that he said that and it felt that way? It wasn't pressure from the record company, it's from the management because the management was keeping them on that plane because the management was getting a kickback. I use that word. Uh, management used the word commission to keep the band on that plane. Of course, after we got to Baton Rouge and that was over, that, that plane would have been done with. And at no time did anybody in the band or I know what the contract said. If I'd have knew what the contract said that the management had in the briefcase, we'd have never boarded that plane. Right. Uh, there's so there's so much information out there, you know, whether it's in books or on the internet. Uh, one of one of which is that there was a lot of rumors that the flight crew that day were, you know, either imbibing or get you know intoxicated. Um, any truth to that? No, none. Their, their blood screens came back good. There wasn't no, there was no alcohol, no drugs. Um, there was no drugs whatsoever in any of the pilot's things. And if you ever read the police report, you'll see that. That's just uh, because they ran out of fuel and people were looking for a reason, you know. So human error. And uh, the other thing, too, that that a lot of people have been questioning is about that. that and this is something that also there's been a lot written about, but to have you here to answer it is really just is such a gift because you were actually, you, you know, true account. Uh, as far as Linda Blair's involvement, with anything, I know she was involved with Skinnerd. Uh, I think, I believe, it started off as her just being a super fan, and then kind of evolving into uh, that she actually got her name was very much involved in controversy as well, and 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 conspiracy theories. Well, that's the reason her name was brought into it. She was dating and living with Gary at the time, and um, so, like I told you, the police department had put a. Um, this package together and they were going to blow up the name Leonard Skinner because Leonard Skinner was such a big name about the, uh, the drug the drug conspiracy there. And so um, when the plane crashed, out of respect for the dead, this is what he told me, they didn't need to blow up the name Leonard Skinner mm -hmm. publicity stunt. They had Linda Blair. Aye. So what happened was at Ronnie's funeral, all of this and the the cocaine dealer still been under surveillance. From Ronnie's funeral, Leon Wilkerson was dating a senator's daughter at the time. I knew the guy, fine human being. I didn't know at that time his son was mixed up with the coke smuggler. So Leon was dating a senator's daughter. And um, Gary was dating Linda Blair. So instead of needing the name Leonard Skinner for a publicity stunt, they had a big actress, Linda Blair. So, so Lin she was a scapegoat. So Linda Blair, Leon's girlfriend, and our secretary went to the cocaine dealer's house to pick up cocaine after Ronnie's funeral. Judy didn't go. Judy wasn't a part of that. And so when they go to the, to the drug dealer's house, there's what the Sheriff's Department needed for publicity, Linda Blair. So boom, they bust the secretary, the senator's daughter, and Linda Blair. Tied in with Leonard Skinner. Oh, so that's how members. I see. That tied, that tied them in with the band, that tied them in with the band members because Linda Blair lived with Gary, Leon, uh, Leon was dating the senator's daughter. And that's how the Linda Blair aspect came is because they were there, they were dating the Skinner guys and they could use the name Linda Blair as publicity stunt instead of the name Leonard Skinner. I see. And were, were the charges dropped against her? I mean, there was really, there's not a lot written about that as far as what what was the aftermath of that. Well, I mean, her career obviously suffered from it. I mean, she was. What, what, how, 
Now, the, the cocaine dealer was busted. He went to prison. He served his time. And if you went out to his house and bought a little bit of cocaine, but you got plenty of money to pay a, a lawyer, and if you got plenty of cash money, in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, you could get things done. And so they got what they wanted. They wanted the cocaine dealer. They got him. And he served his time. And they got the publicity stunt from busting the coke dealer by using the name Linda Blair, associated with Leonard Skin and Band members. That's exactly what that had. It went down. Yeah. If you were to really look at all these conspiracies, Gene, and there's so many, I mean, and this will happen with all, you know, any, anybody in the public eye, whenever there's a tragedy, whenever there's any kind of controversy, uh, it happened with JFK, it happens with every celebrity. Uh, what, what out of all of them would you say is just the most off the wall, crazy, crazy conspiracy that just has no, absolutely no basis in the truth for, for about the regarding, the, regarding the crash and the band? Well, um, and I know that's a big, that's a double question, but it, the, this band, uh, there, there's just so much written on oh, them. Oh, okay, let me think, okay. All right, so when we started running out of fuel, the engines were sputtering, and the one engine would spin, and when it would pick up some fuel, of course the engine would pull air, and when it pick up some fuel, that engine would rev up, and spin the plane sideways a little bit, you know, and you're 12, coming out of 12,000 feet, 10,000 feet, and that plane's doing that. It's it's a horrible shock. Um, and so, um, when that started, and we started coming down, um, everybody, you know, the, I went to the cockpit. Oh, let me, let me go back to the beginning. When we left, okay, the night before Greenville, South Carolina, um, after the show, the night of the concert, before we left, the day we left, they, uh, I had went to bed, and don't mess with Gene Odom when he goes to bed. Ryan told people, don't mess with Gene Odom, sleep. So, and Skinner had a couple of bad actors in the crew that supplied substance to the band and so um, they had a band meeting the album was released it was doing great and having a band meeting and so obviously they were drinking and doing tooting or whatever they did whatever and so the meeting and so everybody in the band had an alias you didn't call yourself Gary Rosington you called yourself R.E. Lee or something like that as your alias so the, the Ronnie had fired two of the band members two of the crew members and Jojo Billingsley, uh, she, for, for obvious reasons, she had been fired. So, but she knew all the aliases. Mm -hmm. And so they were having their meetings and um, they had been drinking and carrying on and whatever after the show was over and everything. And so she's calling the rooms, trying to get Ronnie to give her a job back, on my job back, crying and screaming on the phone, right, 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 aggravating Ronnie. and. There was a, a, one of the band members that was her and him, or I'm not going to use any names. And so Ronnie had jumped on him and said, you know, this is your problem, boy, you put a stop to this. And so they, they had been up all night. Ronnie hated to fly. A couple of the other people didn't want to fly on that plane anymore. They had called the airport, whatever. And so that morning, after they'd been up all night long, I went out to the to the 
airport and talked to the pilots and they told me that, you know, everything's fine, don't be, it's none of your business, we know what we're doing with the pilots, we'll take you off of this plane if you say one more thing about this. I said, well, you're a fool. And so anyway, after being up all night, when we board the plane, Ronnie came to me, he said, I got two sleeping pills from one of the girls. I've taken them sleep pills. I've got to get a couple hours sleep, Gene. I've got to get some sleep. So when we got up, there, there was a couch at the, at the front. Against the wall was Kevin Elson, Alan, and Gary. There was four seat belts, four seats on that couch. In front of it was a little narrow table that you could set a drink on or you could prop your feet on that table. Of the link, almost the length of the couch, probably six feet. So Ryan says, I gotta get to sleep, and I can't lay in this chair. I said, all right, get up. I told Kevin and Alan Gary, lift your feet up. And I, I said, Ronnie, lay down here, between here, and they can put their feet up there and you can sleep, and people can go to the galley or the bathroom, and they won't bump into you. So he, he lay down there and put his head over his face. Boom, he was gone. I've read that's something that he did frequently. He would he, stretch out and- He was out. Yeah. And he was under the influence of those two sleeping pills, mm -hmm. along with the cocaine, along with the alcohol. So he was gone, zoned out. And he, the, whole, the whole flight time, he was out cold. And so uh, when we started running out of fuel and problems, I got up and run up to the cop. And he was going on and they said, well, you know, um, we're having fuel problems, whatever. We're gonna try to put this plane down in this field, I run back, and when I run back, I kick Ronnie in the ribs. Get up, you know, and, and the pilot said, tell everybody to strap in, strap everybody in, so I run me in, get strapped in. A couple people were asleep, woke them up, get strapped in. You know, I'm not sure if somebody else went up there and did the same thing that I did, well, argue with the pilots about come back. And so um, I ran back up there, I was arguing with him. I said, now see, see what you got yourself into, what we into? Said, man, sit down. You know, we're going. They're, they're fighting with the plane, and we're out of fuel, and it's coming down. And that's the pilots that you were addressing. The pilots. Yeah, yeah I was mad. I was mad as hell. And I said, uh, he said, make sure everybody's strapped in. Go, 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 get your seat. Get strapped in. So I run by and I kick Ronnie in the ribs. Get up. You know, and um, I, I said, everybody strapped in. Whatever you know. And then I ran back to the cockpit, and I'm cussing them out. And I see we're coming down. They're trying to make that field. And back here, back in the, over the swamp, I see the plane turn and it nosed it. I said, we're not gonna make it. Yeah. I said, see what you've done? I said, you know, I said, we ain't gonna make it. And I said, I hope to you two SOBs live through this. I'm gonna beat both of you to death. And so, Ronnie was still on the floor, grogged out, had no idea the plane was crashing, had no idea. So I just ran around and grabbed him up under his wings. And I grabbed him and shoved him between Alan and Gary and shoved him and he's fighting with me. Man, don't be messing with me, I gotta get to sleep. Come on, Gene, what are you doing? I strapped him myself, but see, I said, man, the plane's crashing. He said, man, don't be too fucking with me, I gotta get some sleep, man, don't be messing with me. And I I, um, I grabbed a pillow that he had, I pushed the pillow and I grabbed his head, put your head down, man, the plane's crashing. He still didn't know the plane was crashing, he thought I was messing with him. He's ready to fight. About that time, they say trees, we start hitting the trees, bop, 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 bop. and so we're coming at a 52 degree angle. And I slapped him. I said, man, I'm not messing. The plane's crashing. Put your head down. And I'm 100% sure he unsnapped the seatbelt, possibly trying to stand up to fight with me about messing with him. Yeah. And then we hit the ground, boom. You know, and the impact, he was he twisted, and he was on top of that table. 
if you ever seen his autopsy photograph, you'd see what I was talking about about well, that I, bridge. I know they were released because there had been again more more rumors you see, that maybe were not factual. You but, see yeah. the, you, you see his back. You see that red streak down his back. Yeah. That's the corner of that table, mm -hmm. and he was from the impact. Mm -hmm. He was knocked unconscious, right. and so the other people and the other stuff piled on top of him, and they was all crunched up in that. He was knocked unconscious and never had a chance to breathe. Had a little nick behind his ear and a fractured femur. Ronnie Van Zandt died from asphyxiation by not being able to breathe. He was knocked unconscious. He went to sleep, never woke up. Yeah. Never knew the plane was crashing. Never realized, never accepted the fact that the plane was crashing. Right. And that eats me up. Well, I guess if there's fans and people that loved him that would probably feel that he was spared that, yeah. But at the same time, it's just uh, he didn't suffer. He did not suffer. The suffering he went through was thinking that I was messing with him. Well, well, you know, well, you know let me sleep, man. Let me get some sleep, man. Right. Yeah. But so as far as as far as you're concerned, that is that is the what happened. That's exactly so, what happened. Yeah. And he didn't get up, and go to the back of the plane, and give nobody no hippie handshake. Ronnie Van Zant was so drugged out, drugged out from the effects of the drugs, the alcohol, and those two sleeping pills. You know what one sleeping pill will do to you. Right. You take two of them. And I don't know how strong those pills were, yeah. but he never knew the plane was crashing. He never left that spot when I got him about the floor. Three, three seconds, he was dead. Wow. Three seconds after I got him up and strapped him in there. And I didn't get back to my seat, thank God, because how far, whatever far I got is where the plane ripped apart. Uh, and a, a small area, and the responders can't understand how I went through that crack in the fuselage and ended up under the very engine that was giving us the problems. Nobody knew I was under there. It was pitch black, and then they've got Billy out, set Billy on part of that wing there. And after a while, they're trying to re help everybody. I come out another crawl out toward where Billy's out under that, and Billy sees me crawling out and calls her responders and says, hey, hey, Gene Odom's over here, he's all messed up, you know. When I asked him about it, a massive hole in my head, my eye was burnt, and I had these big holes burning me. And he, Billy said he would reach for me, and he was mumbling, and, and I'd push it back. And he said, you'd pass out for him, and he'd come to and you'd re I'd reach for you and push it back. And like I said, I asked him why he pushed me back. He's, his nose was cut real bad, and he said, I was afraid you was gonna pull my nose off, yeah. you know. And so uh, I, I was the only person to throw down the fuselage, and you know, thank God that I went through there, you know, and uh, survived it. Yeah, and you ha you are a survivor, Gene. I mean, yeah. and you were a good friend. You you did your best. The uh, getting back to JoJo for a moment, if I may. There, as far as any conspiracy theories around her, I know there's been a lot written about her, and she was. Uh, she was a big part of Skinner for the period of time that she was there. She had, a, I believe Ronnie used to say that she was his flavor for when she sang. She had that Janis Joplin quality. She got the job. Yeah. Basically, just she had the look and she had the sound and, uh, you know, she did contribute. She, why did she leave? Why did she leave? And wasn't he taking her back? I had always heard that Ronnie was hiring her back because she she didn't go because she had the dream. And for those listening that are not familiar with the dream, she had a. a, a kind of prophetic dream about the plane crash. That's not, no, no, no that's true. Uh, I'm not going to say why she was fired, okay. because it's extremely personal. Mm -hmm. Let's just say it was a... Um, mm. Unfortunate set of circumstances? No, um, 
I don't want to point the finger at a, a, a band member yeah. and her, you know. Uh, let's just say it was an extreme torrid relationship mm -hmm. that only one person that could take control of it and it just got it got out of hand yeah. and it was going to cause conflict, so Ronnie put a stop to it. So there was no truth to that, that she had warned them about the plane crashing no. and all that? Oh. No. Yeah, so true. I mean, there's really just so many examples of, of stories that you're able to qualify for us today, which is really a gift to Littered Skinner fans because we want to know. I mean, we care about these people. You can put, you can put it to, into the same bottle as this bottle of water with the two, two crew members that Ronnie fired. At the meeting, the, um, what would you call it? Budget meeting the bit before we leave. Oh, okay, so we're up there. I'm in, I'm standing back. I'm not sticking my nose in the, the, the band's budget meeting. So two of the crew members they'd been. This is in my movie. They'd all been drinking and uh, drugs and all the other stuff before the meetings, and so um, it got to the point that uh, the budget was being done, and so these two guys went. Well, we want to raise. Ronnie says, "Well, the budget's already done." Salaries, everything, budget's done. When we come back home after the tour's over. You get a raise. You, you, you're ready for a raise. Well, no, we want to raise now, or we're not going. Ronnie says the budget's done. It's done, done deal. When we come back, you get your raise. Now, we ain't going anywhere. We want to raise right now. Mm. Ronnie went get them two airplane tickets to, to where they live at. You're fired. Yeah. And so they were fired. Uh, for that same, for that reason, won't butt, butt head with Ronnie Vans and and, uh, and so at the same meeting is when JoJo was fired. Well, and, listen, they called they called him ahead. right, and they called him the boss for a reason mm -hmm. because he knew how to he knew how to lead yeah. that band, and he he obviously had some, you know, he, a lot of challenges, and he had to really he had uh, he had to be in charge. Uh, Gene, what a lot of people might not know about you, and I know this is a very heavy topic that we've been talking about today, and I thank you so much for really um, opening our eyes to what really took place that day and the days leading up to that horrible tragedy and also your years with Ronnie. Uh, a lot of people might not realize how funny you are and that you are, uh, uh, you know, you really do bring levity to a lot of situations and you just have such a great personality and a lot of times when I'm talking to you I notice that um, you'll say something that will stay with me for a couple of days and I like to call them, <laughs> I like to call them otimisms. <laughs> <laughs> Just, or you know, something that you say that a little genius, because Gene, you really you, you're one of a kind. You're a card, and I was wondering if there's anything you'd like, one or two that you could share with the audience, just to make them giggle a little bit today. Because I know we've we've been talking about some some very sad things that will we, we, that will stay with us. But it's always good. I always think it's good to to smile too and try to get through the hard times with laughter. So it, I'll take anything you got because they're all I, funny. I have. I, I, <coughs> I do all that. It's just kind of natural because I have no education. I'm no. I'm an old barefoot hillbilly country boy. I got a, I call it a, uh, I'm dirt road dumb, but I'm street smart, <laughs> you know. And so um, one of those people was asking about a bluegill. What's the biggest bluegill I ever caught? Well, I'll tell you, I just caught one the other day. Weighed 38 pounds. Now, people going for that, that's. That's a brim, right? That's, that's a brim. A... They can't believe that. But look here, don't panic, y'all, because the cricket I was using for bait weighs six pounds. <laughs> you know? So that's how that There goes. you go. Yeah. Gene, it's been so great talking to you. 
you know, just just to have you here as someone that was was really there at the time and truly a good friend, a, a, a dear friend to the band, to Ronnie. It's so special, and I thank you so much for your time and for just really opening our eyes to the truth and and you know. The, well, I hope uh, I hope I uh, enlightened you a little bit and and, and told you the truth because. There is the truth, and there isn't the truth. I mean, and believe me, there's people on that plane, that were on that plane that are alive today, that know the truth. They don't, they don't put nothing out there, but there's, uh, Gene Odom is nothing but the truth. Yeah, and I, that, that. I, I mean, I ain't never told a lie in my life. Yeah. I'd still be married to my first wife if I had lied to her. <laughs> and there's yeah. another Odomism. I didn't lie to her. Thank you, Gene. Always hey. great to talk to you. Anytime.